despite uh, the CPI data being worse than expected. Yeah, uh, waking up to that uh, particular turnaround, uh, having looked at the inflation figure and seen the market cuts, you would say, well, that's a logical move on a higher print on inflation. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the highest... uh, um, bottom to high swing in uh, in stocks um, really has caught everyone by surprise, and I think I'm uh, still trying to analyse it myself. I would suspect that it it's a, it's a reflection of the volatility in markets, not necessarily a reflection of confidence. Maybe we'd seen some fairly weak conditions going into the CPI figure, and that sort of sell the rumour by the fact uh, scenario might have played in. So uh, I suspect to be wary to take that as a as a significant change in sentiment at this point in time. Maybe more flow driven. Okay, Toby, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week in Australia. A big rebound going on. The ASX 200 up one and three quarter percent. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan storming ahead up two and three quarter percent right now. The Cosby also up one and three quarter percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to add about 250 points at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Coming up after the news is Back Chat with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast uh, for today is going to be uh, fine and dry. Maximum temperature around 31 degrees. Continuing fine and dry on Saturday, but it's going to become cooler earlier next week. Uh, The temperature right now is 25 degrees, 71% relative humidity. 8.31, here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. The U.S. Congressional Committee investigating the storming of the Capitol building in Washington by Donald Trump supporters has called on the former president to appear before it. The committee voted unanimously to subpoena Mr. Trump. The chairman, Benny Thompson, said there was no doubt that the former president led an effort to upend American democracy that resulted in the violence on January the 6th last year. Mr. Thompson said he must be held accountable. He is required to answer for his actions He's required to answer to those police officers who put their lives and bodies on the line to defend our democracy. He's required to answer to those millions of Americans who votes he wanted to throw out as part of his scheme to remain in power. So it is our obligation to seek Donald Trump's testimony. Mr. Trump has dismissed the hearings and asked why he wasn't asked to testify earlier. A jury in the United States has recommended that the gunman who killed 17 people in a school shooting at Parkland in Florida should be sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole. Nicholas Cruz, who's 24, had pleaded guilty to carrying out the killings four years ago at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. But his lawyers argued that he should be spared execution because of long-standing mental health problems. The parents of those who died in the attack condemned the verdict. Fred Gutenberg, whose daughter Jaime said Cruz, who, who lost his daughter Jaime, said Cruz should have received the death penalty. This jury failed our families today. But I will tell you, the monster is going to go to prison, and in prison, I hope and pray he receives the kind of mercy from prisoners that he showed to my daughter and the 16 others. He is going to go to prison, and he will die in prison. And I will be waiting to read the news on that. 
The head of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, says the military alliance will soon provide Ukraine with dozens of jammers to counteract Russian and Iranian drones. Speaking after a meeting in Brussels, Mr Stoltenberg said NATO defence ministers had agreed to increase stockpiles of munitions and were increasing protection of their critical infrastructure following the sabotage of Baltic gas pipelines. Allies are increasing security around key installations. And we are stepping up our intelligence sharing and surveillance across all domains, from space to undersea capabilities. We also agreed to enhance the resilience of our critical undersea and energy infrastructure. And finally, the South Korean military says North Korea has fired another ballistic missile into the sea off its east coast. It's the latest in a recent series of test launches conducted by Pyongyang. The Joint Chiefs of Staff in Seoul also said the North had flown military aircraft close to the two countries' border late last night. More news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning. This is Back Chat for Friday, October the 14th. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. On today's Back Chat, we are looking ahead to China's 20th Party Congress after top leaders of the ruling Communist Party wrapped up their final plenary session for this term on Wednesday. During the four-day plenary session in Beijing, members of the 19th Cent- uh, Central Committee approved a work report presented by President Xi Jinping. The report outlines policies, development goals and achievements. And it also includes a major amendment to the party's constitution. We'll get into that later. Next on the agenda is the Party Congress starting Sunday. We're going to ask how significant is the National Congress, what is it about and how does it work? After 9.15, we'll look at calls for the government to strengthen anti-drug education after a new study showed a three-fold jump in the number of views of online posts about cannabis products in the past year. Let us know what you're thinking today. You can leave us a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call at 233 266. And kicking off today's show, we are going to welcome Jean-Pierre Cabastin, Emeritus Professor at the Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. Bonjour, Jean-Pierre. Bonjour, good morning. Good morning. Welcome back to the show. We also welcome Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst. Check out his webpage. He's got a lot of really good, uh, interesting-looking books that he's written on there, all about China. Good morning, Mark O'Neill. Bonjour. Bonjour. Bonjour to you, too. You also speak French. We do the whole show in French. But we also welcome Dr. Joseph Gregory Mahoney, who is a professor of politics and international relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai, senior research fellow with the Institute for the Development of Socialism with Chinese Characteristics at Southeast University in Nanjing, a man of two hats. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Mahoney. Ni hao, ni hao. Ni hao. All right. So um, I want to set the stage first. Uh, maybe, uh, Dr. Mahoney, we'll start with you. Uh, you know, I'm out talking to people and they're like, oh, there's this big meeting in Beijing. But they don't, even though it's super important, some people don't understand what it is and what the significance is. Can you kind of set the table for us? Well, I, I think there are two things to note. First, uh, you know, every five years we have uh, a, a national party congress and it's time for one. So. Uh, in Chinese, we, this will be the 20th one since the, the, um, since the party began, and uh, we call this the, the 20th big, or Arshada, in, in shorthand in Chinese. Uh, between uh, the, the intervening years, we have uh, plenary sessions, uh, which are smaller gatherings. Um, but during these big meetings, we tend to have uh, uh, major reassessments of policies. We tend to have new leaders uh, come in, old leaders go out. 
and um, uh, it really sets the tone for you know the uh, the next generation or the next development phase of China going forward. And uh, although I think uh, I think you're right, a lot of people are still confused about, uh, especially internationally, what these meetings really represent. Uh, nevertheless, I think for a lot of um, uh, China observers who, who, who've been who've been paying to the uh, paying attention to these things for for many years, one of the things that that we have noticed is that the world does increasingly pay attention to these big meetings and, and listens very carefully to them, uh, much more so than we would have seen, say, a decade or, or, or 15 years ago. And is this where we get the, the five-year plan from? I think that's a little bit easier for people to understand. Uh, you know, there's there's a relationship, um, but it's not a one-to-one relationship. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, we, you know, we have so many plans right now, and they're, 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 they're sequenced in various ways. For example, the, the really big plan right now is how do we get to 2035 and then bridge that to the, the second centennial goal of, of uh, 2049, 2050. Um, so we have, we have a number of plans. Uh, we have the, the Made in China uh, plan for 2025. We have other goals for the end of the decade. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a deep uh, relationship, but, um, but not one-to-one. Gotcha. And Jean-Pierre Cavastin, what, what are you expecting uh, to come out of this, uh, the, the other end of this four-day meeting? Well, um, first of all, I think we're waiting for Sunday uh, for the opening uh, ceremony of the Congress, and uh, we will have uh, the reports of uh, Xi Jinping. And these reports will be a very important piece of document because it will lay the stage for the next five years, both for the party uh, and for the state. Uh, for domestic politics, uh, you know, uh, but also uh, also foreign policy orientation. So uh, I think a number of uh, major themes will be included in that report, and that's the only thing we have to look at and we have to chew in the, in the next coming days until the final day of the Congress, actually the day after the Congress, when the, the first plenum of the Senate Committee will meet, uh, meet uh, it's uh, there that we will know exactly who, is, who will be the next leadership for the, for, for the, for the next five years. So uh, before that, I think the uh, delegates are going to debate or discuss behind closed doors, and we won't know much about what, what's going on, because as you know, the party congress is a very secretive meeting. So what we, uh, the, the, the first piece of the document is important, but uh, uh, everybody will be waiting for the uh, first plenum of the uh, incoming uh, Senate Committee to know exactly who is going to uh, uh, run the country, in particular, who is going to be included in, in a standing committee of the Politburo, the seven uh, lucky <laughs> leaders of the party will be, will be uh, uh, together with Xi Jinping leading the country. Now, uh, the, uh, today we know that the uh, according to you know uh, uh, pra- pra- practices, uh, uh, leaders of a uh, 68, uh, including 68, who needs uh, to retire, uh, other leaders will stay in or should stay in. So it means that 10 out of uh, 25 members of the Politburo uh, uh, will will need to retire. Uh, but we don't know. Well, first of all, Xi Jinping is not going to apply this rule to himself because he's already 69 and he's going to stay on. Uh, but for other leaders, we, we don't know. Uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, speculations uh, about who will be. Uh, uh, who will stay in the standing committee. You know, people like Li Keqiang may stay on uh, with a new uh, position, maybe an MPC, National People's Congress chair, but that's a speculation. And uh, the most important of uh, change will be who will be in the next premier. 
because Li Keqiang, according to the state constitution, would need to step down as uh, prime minister. And, uh, and here, speculation are pretty fierce. Maybe it may be a, uh, a reformist like Wang Yang, but it may be someone else. Uh, and then, and then uh, we'll see what, what kind of balance of power will, 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 will be, uh, you know, will we come out of the standing committee, whether Xi Jinping will have many of his, uh, you know, dominate the standing committee with many of his allies, or whether he will have to share power with the other factions, in particular the Houdita faction. And I, I, I suspect the latter may, may be more uh, probable than, than the more likely in the form All right. Professor Kavistan, uh, earlier you said uh, we will be uh, finding out uh, about the next leadership for, for the next five years. Um, um, what do we know about the selection process? Well, um, Xi Jinping doesn't like elections. So what he likes, he likes to consult people one-to-one, and -one, elder leaders, uh, and to see, you know, wh wh uh, whether there is some consensus about who can be promoted. Uh, now, uh, on the paper, this central committee is elected by the delegates, uh, but the list, the, 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 the name list of the party of the central committee members has been prepared by the central leadership, with, you know, by itself, with the help of the organization uh, uh, department of the party. And I, I don't think that there will be a real vote. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but for the Politburo, uh, I think they're going to be uh, co-opted by the party center, in particular by Xi Jinping, with, with, with the, uh, I think, with the, with the consent of uh, other members of the standing committee. But we don't know exactly how, how these uh, leaders are going to be picked up. I think clearly Xi Jinping is going to play a key role, his allies as well. Uh, who can, you know, who control the uh, organization department of the of the party, and so um, it, it's um, well, um, well, you know, there's a lot of rumors about whether, you know, that, that there's been some pushback in the last few months against Xi Jinping uh, from, from the uh, coming from the reformists, but also from segments of the civil society or the or the elites that, you know, because of the COVID-19 uh, crisis, the COVID policy, but also uh, Xi Jinping very. Uh, assertive foreign policy, so there's been some, uh, some negative reaction within the party, and maybe we'll have to take that into account and include in the leadership uh, more moderate and more reformist uh, uh, officials. But uh, again, uh, those, uh, uh, those uh, um, uh, horse trading uh, kind of uh, uh, arrangements uh, are made behind closed doors, and so we'll see the result at the end of, uh, at the, end of the Congress at the first party plan. All right. And Dr. Mahoney, um, earlier, uh, Professor Kapistan, he, he was talking about this uh, unwritten rule over the past two decades where people aged 68 or above cannot remain in the uh, top leadership body. He expects uh, this may change. What do you expect? Do you think uh, this rule, um, do you expect this rule to apply this time around? And uh, what do you think of uh, Professor Kapistan's assessment so far? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the big question for so many people in the West, and, and it's the one that they're sort of, uh, you know, focusing on above all others, is the, the likelihood that we'll see Xi Jinping continuing for a third term. And, you know, it's described uh, again and again in, in, in Western media, particularly as an unprecedented third term. And I think that's a little bit of an overstatement, given what we saw in terms of the, the leadership longevity of the first and second generations uh, with Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. Um, but that said, um, I think that, you know, uh, as, as, as was already mentioned, um, this is going to be really a Congress uh, that's, that's alternating between two perspectives, uh, continuity 
uh, but but the value of continuity amid you know the, the, this term that we hear uh, changes unseen in a century and and um, that are now uh, proliferating and, and have ensured the, the the opening of a new era. And by the way, we see similar language in Biden's national security document that was released uh, a couple of days ago about we're in this decisive period of the next five to ten years that are really going to you know, determine the, the shape of the world for, for decades to come. So I think everyone is very aware that we're in this, this fraught moment, and also that uh, other countries in the world, uh, Japan, South Korea, Germany, uh, the U.K., Australia, uh, and to, to a certain extent the United States itself, have all recently uh, elected new leaders, and um, they're, they're struggling amid uh, governance. Uh, they're struggling to govern amid, amid high polarization in these intersecting uh, crises and, and China, you know, has this um, believes they've found this leader that can uh, help uh, usher them through this, this period. But I think mm. I think the thing that we have to focus on here is as one as as, as one of the, the panelists has already mentioned, you know, it's it's there, there's this rumor that that's been growing for some time, and it may or may not be true. We'll see in the next week that Li Keqiang is going to have a, an enduring role, um, maybe with the MPC. Uh, I've also heard possibly that that uh, Wang Qishan will be stepping down, and that he may be taking um, uh, a role as, as as vice president. But I think what this illustrates, I think, is the principle of collective leadership and the need to bring together people who who represent uh, diverse um, um, uh, parts of the party in order to to you know unify and keep everyone moving forward. And I think this is, I, I think there's sort of this strange thing that, that's hard for many people to grasp, which is, I, I don't think so much that, that it's so much about um, the, 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 you know, securing the leadership of one man and, and, and the person of Xi Jinping, but rather uh, protecting um, this thought, uh, Xi Jinping thought, you know, this, this term that has become associated with all these new developments over the past decade that are, that are considered instrumental to, to Chinese development strategy and how it deals with um, uh, the, the challenge it's facing in the, inter- in the international arena. How do we protect and, and, and create uh, an iconic status for that thought um, going forward so that it doesn't simply uh, fall apart or get negated um, if, if, if the man himself um, um, you know, is unable to continue uh, for whatever reason. So I think it's important to, to emphasize that collective leadership is still uh, a key value and um, that, that there may be a little bit of a difference between how we regard the actual man and the thought that is now... Um, that carries his name. Mark O'Neill, you're, you're a historian. Can you put this in historical context? I mean, world leaders always want to say that they are at the center of, you know, world-changing historical times. Is, is this the real deal? I mean, and, and what do well, you... Well, I, I, uh, I mean, my opinion is this is a very historic moment because, you know, Deng Xiaoping uh, set down the rules that uh, you can only have two five-year terms and then there must be a change because Deng lived through the Maoist era he lived through the, the Great Famine. He lived through the Cultural Revolution, these catastrophes that happened to China. And so he, say, he said, this mustn't happen again. We mustn't allow anyone to have this concentration of power. And this is now exactly what's happening. So the, the Dungist era is finished, and now we're in a new era. And many people think that uh, Mr. Xi will become chairman of the party. This is a post that's been 
hasn't been filled since Mao died. So then we'll have Chairman Xi, and we're, we're very much likely to have Xi Jinping thought elevated during this Congress. And it'll be thought with a capital T, and it'll be like Mao Zedong thought. So, you know, we, we are going back to a leadership style that uh, the PRC had in its first three decades. Mm-hmm. And many of my Chinese friends are, are quite uneasy about this because, of course, if the policy is the right policy, then everything goes smoothly. Mm. It's a very good, uh, very good system. But it, it's too much to have one person uh, co- concentrating too much power in, in, in one person. Do, do titles – explain why titles matter so much because I remember Deng Xiaoping was effectively running the country at one point and he was the president of the Bridge Club of China. You know, which is quite quaint and cute. But, you know, well, the, what, the titles what, didn't matter. What did he could do, theoretically, is he, <coughs> he could at some stage step down, appoint someone else as the head of the party, and then <coughs> be, take on a dungest role, as you say, running the show from behind the curtain. But um, every indication at the moment is that's not going to happen. He's very vigorous. He's, he's, he just went to Kazakhstan. He, he speaks frequently. He visits uh, countryside in China. He's very, very active. So there's no sign that, that he's going to do that. So I think he'll be a very active leader. Uh, Jean-Pierre Cavastin, aside from the, the uh, cementing Xi's position, I mean, it, it seems it's hard to – sometimes I think people are forgetting that there are other policies that will be announced. I was listening to a, a Bloomberg uh, talk on the way, and they were talking about green energy policies in China that are going to come out of this or might be part of this. What, what are some of the other issues aside from the, the leadership that we should be focused on? Just one word on leadership. The only thing we know that he will be, uh, Xi Jinping will be uh, elevated to the rank of uh, uh, leader of the people, uh, uh, that has been already announced by Wang Huning. Whether he will uh, be president or not is another story. The position was abolished by Deng Xiaoping for good reasons. And uh, the other thing I would mention is the growing cult of uh, Xi Jinping's personality, which is also something which was taboo uh, under Deng Xiaoping and which is also uh, announcing a new era. Now, regarding, regarding uh, uh, public policies, I think there are a number of uh, catchwords which are going to be enshrined into the uh, party, into the um, Xi Jinping's report, including, of course, the idea of common prosperity. Now, we have to see how it's going to be um, uh, fleshed out because we are in a time of recession or slowdown uh, in China. And, uh, you know, uh, the, to, to what extent the party can really implement that policy and, and, uh, and uh, give the Chinese society a more robust uh, health service system, a more uh, robust safety net, a social safety net. Uh, and uh, the problem is, in, is that in China it relies much more on the cities and the, the provinces and their, and their capacity, financial capacity, to, to, to achieve those, those programs. The other thing is, of course, foreign policy and the growing tension with the United States, and that has a lot of uh, uh, political but also uh, military and, 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 I would say, economic implications. The first economic implications are, of course, uh, to make sure that China will be more self-reliant, will be able to uh, achieve a number of um, results in terms of new technologies and, 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 and decrease its, uh, reduce its dependence upon the U.S. and, and the West. Uh, the other thing is, of course, uh, uh, whether these um, quasi-alliances Russia will hold on and uh, whether Ch- China will sort of uh, 
uh, deepen its confrontation with the United States and the result, recent strategic uh, uh, policy uh, the national, uh, announced by, by the Bush administration, I think is going to, of course, uh, 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 confirm Xi Jinping in his uh, uh, foreign policy orientation, which is to uh, uh, deepen China's uh, competition with the United States. So these are also implications for 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 Taiwan, for for, for China's neighbors, neighbors, and particularly Taiwan. You know whether uh, Xi Jinping in the next five years is going to uh, make some uh, dramatic decisions regarding unification with Taiwan or not. And mm. but my sense is, will be he will, and the Chinese leadership will be busier with domestic issues, domestic challenges. Uh, and uh, and how to get out, first of all, of these uh, dynamic zero-COVID policy. And apparently there are disagreements at the top of the leadership on the way forward. Uh, so that's going to be, in any event, uh, pretty slow and gradual. And that's all going to have a, an impact, of course, of course, on Chinese economic growth in the coming years, what, what the party can achieve and, and, uh, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, again, common prosperity. Dr. Mahoney, that's a, that's a lot of different things to cover from foreign policy to territorial ambitions to the economy to the welfare state. What what are you focused on outside of the uh, outside of the leadership question? You're you're asking me. Yep. Yeah, I I, I think that uh, I agree with a lot of the points that we just made. I, I do think we're going to uh, obviously see this concept of common prosperity uh, emphasized. I think if we if we see uh, Li Keqiang continue, then it will definitely signal. Um, uh, uh, definitely, in a, in a prognosticating uh, sense, uh, definitely signal uh, an emphasis on domestic development. There are a lot of analyses that say that uh, uh, the, the need, that the pressing need to develop uh, rural areas, the countryside, uh, lower tier cities, uh, that this is what's really kind of uh, hamstringing China's ability to to move forward. On, on different fronts, and, and perhaps even uh, part of the reason why we've kept uh, zero COVID in place for so long, because uh, the rural areas are so vulnerable. Um, and if you if you spend any time in, in rural areas in China, uh, I mean, you know, way out, way out in the middle of nowhere, um, you, you don't often actually see the party flag. You see the the Tuan Pai flag, the the the, the YCL flag, where, and this is you know the the old faction that was associated with Hu Jintao. Um, and that uh, Li Keqiang is, you know, uh, in so much as that, that faction still exists, that Li Keqiang is still kind of the, 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 the top guy in that, in that group. So, you know, if we're going to have um, this move towards a focus on domestic uh, development and, uh, and, and above all, uh, rural and uh, uh, countryside development, um, then it would be very valuable to have someone like uh, Li Keqiang uh, leading those efforts and mobilizing uh, those networks um, uh, in, in those parts of the country, um, and I, I, that's that's probably the thing that I'm that I'm uh, expecting the most. I agree that we're not going to see, in all likelihood, a, a rapid uh, step down or a scale back of the zero COVID policy uh, for a number of reasons. Um, uh, a lot of them um, um, due to compelling uh, public health reasons that are still difficult for people uh, to understand, nevertheless. Um, um, but it, it's clear that uh, it's clear that the the, the broader uh, strategic posture and um, the, the rising tension vis-a-vis -vis the United States, um, as well as how the, the situation in Ukraine has roiled um, uh, global affairs and you know had impacts on things like um, 
the OPEC plus uh, recent uh, uh, cuts and, and uh, um, the, the scarcity of the dollar and the threat of hyperdollarization and how, uh, you know, the, in tandem with rising interest rates and how that can affect and is affecting the Chinese uh, currency. I, I think we're going to clearly see some, some powerful statements uh, that, that are responding to this international environment, but, uh, but the solutions, I, I suspect, will largely be how do we how do we strengthen China from within? How do we step forward with the dual circulation strategy? Uh, how do we improve domestic uh, capacity, demand, uh, efficiencies? How do we move forward with uh, some of the recent um, policies that, that we saw, for example, Li Keqiang promoting in Shenzhen with uh, technological upgrading of uh, uh, mid-sized uh, firms and smaller firms um, uh, trying to, to find um, both ways to spur uh, and local investment uh, to, to, to jumpstart the economy, but also to create new efficiencies uh, going forward. All right. Uh, Jean-Pierre Cabestan, I know you're, you're going to have to leave us at the top of the hour. Uh, you've got one minute to uh, give us your, your, uh, yes. your final, one, your final I hit. Just, I would just add one point to what has been just said, is uh, um, the, 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 how much the private sector is going to be uh, back in the, really, as a mainstream uh, avenue for a, a economic development. At the sitting ping, uh, the priority was given really to the public sector, the SOEs, to the detriment of the private sector. The private sector itself has been put on a shorter leash with, you know, the establishment of party committees in many of the private firms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they, they, they the need, and uh, the reformists of the party are pretty much aware of it, to give more leeway to the private sector in order to, well, to create jobs and to, uh, to really nurture a much more balanced economic development in the coming years. Yeah, all right. Well, uh Look, yeah, definitely be looking to see what, what role they have for the private sector in that. Uh, Jean-Pierre Cabestin, Emeritus Professor, Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University, just down the road from our studios. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to come back uh, after the news on the hour. Uh, Mark O'Neill and uh, Dr. Mahoney are going to continue on this big topic for the day. Uh, we're going to give you a quick hit of the weather. Uh, if you thought the cool temperatures were here to stay, you were wrong. Fine and dry with a maximum temperature of around 31 degrees today. We're going to have a little bit of winds. Uh, weekend's looking good, mainly fine and dry on Saturday. A little bit of wind and the cooler temperatures will be back. Uh, looking Tuesday, Wednesday morning, dropping down to 20 degrees. Fantastic. And with that, uh, the temperature now is 26 degrees Celsius, uh, humidity 65%, and this is Backchat. Hey. And we're back. I'm Andrew Work with Janice Wong, and we are talking about the Party Congress coming up. The, uh, what did I say, Ursha Da, Da Ursha? I'll have to ask the experts. So we have with us now Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst, and continuing with us also is Dr. Joseph Gregory Mahoney uh, from East China Normal University, The View from Shanghai. Uh, gentlemen, welcome back. Um, I want to kick off with this, co- this concept of common prosperity i mean i guess there's a number of different elements to it but could could you explain this uh you know and is is it going to be changed in the party congress or i mean i'm kind of getting the impression it sounds like soak the rich smack you know and then and then give to the poor but i mean it's more complicated than that isn't it mark do you want to kick off yes please yes i i think during the dungish period um china's economy developed extremely rapidly but it didn't develop equally across all social classes. And uh, certain sectors, certain individuals uh, made 
enormous fortunes, and we can see that in duty-free shops <laughs> in airports around the world. Uh-huh. Uh, Chinese became the highest spending tourists in the world. It was, it was extraordinary. But, of course, people who were living in poor areas, on poor land, with, with limited economic opportunities, with no factories, their quality of life, their incomes did not improve uh, mm. substantially. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, the government's aim is to try to narrow this uh, income equality. But it's very difficult because the, the fastest growing and most dynamic part of the economy is the private sector. So you give private companies, smart entrepreneurs, time, opportunities, capital, and they develop very quickly. They hire people. The economy grows rapidly. So the government's got to find a way to balance these two, to, to narrow this uh, social inequality, but at the same time give enough incentives to the private sector to, to grow. And, I mean, this is not just a Chinese problem. This is a problem which many governments in the world face. And I think in the last five years, perhaps the pendulum has swung too far against the private sector. As, as, as we know, there's been very drastic action taken against many high-tech companies. The private education sector was also more or less closed down. Um, uh, so I, I, I suspect there will be a softening of that policy. And as uh, Jean-Pierre said, I think they'll try to find a way to, to give more confidence to the private sector and give it more capital so it can... Uh, reboost again, because the biggest problem facing the government after the Congress, of course, is the economic one. In the second quarter, China's economy grew by 0.4%, which is the lowest since since the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. So um, it's got to find a way to get the economy back, you know, to five, six, six percent. So that will be its priority after the Congress. Dr. Mahonia, is this are there concrete policies that could come out of this uh, this Congress that will be saying, "Hey, private sector, help China to get back on its feet"? Um, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that's that's always kind of difficult to conceptualize is what exactly is the private sector mm-hmm. in in China. Uh, you know, so much of what are actually private companies are, you know, have a majority stakeholder that is in some way uh, a government uh, enterprise. So um, I'm, I'm not always clear myself uh, what what the dividing line is between these two. Um, I think I think when we if we talk about private companies, I, I'm not so much concerned about private companies like the big tech firms. Um, it's true they were disciplined, but we we already saw that being relaxed. Uh, they were disciplined last year, but we, we saw that being relaxed earlier this year. Um, and it's it's clear, I think, with the with the tech upgrading policies that we're now seeing promoted, that they're that they're going to be big beneficiaries of, of some of the, the development schemes. But what has been concerning, and it was concerning before COVID, and and certainly the the, the concern deepened uh, during COVID, is what happens to small businesses. And these are these are you know really. Uh, the, the, the private uh, companies are, that, that, that make up a significant chunk or had been making up a significant chunk of the Chinese economy and, and uh, disproportionately among women, 
um, and and people uh, who were you know starting out at a lower level, uh, coming from the countryside perhaps. Um, and a lot of these a lot of these firms were already uh, at risk, um, as I said before COVID, because of uh, new developments. For example, uh, delivery services, where you know we used to have a lot of small shops and um, um, uh, restaurants. Um, but once we started having the, the domination of, of food delivery services, uh, the bigger corporate uh, um, um, restaurants were able to negotiate um, delivery fees uh, with, with um, Alama or, or other groups and uh, protect uh, and already having uh, advantages in terms of uh, better margins. And um, uh, this in tandem with uh, what we saw uh, four or five years ago, where we where we saw a much needed enforcement of uh, zoning regulations, uh, both in in Shanghai and Beijing, but in other major cities as well, that uh, pushed a lot of um, uh, small businesses out of their out of their um, out of the places that they were renting because they were maybe renting uh, in residential residentially zoned uh, areas and, and so forth and so on. Um, because that's where they had an advantage, uh, where they didn't have to have a delivery mm. component. But um, this this has been something that has has I think been a, a real issue, um, and and I would I would be personally very delighted to see uh, some sort of recognition uh, of this challenge and the need to reinvigorate small businesses. We, we've heard a number of things, uh, you know, some some COVID recovery scheme, uh, money, uh, finance that that could go to small businesses, but we haven't seen any substantial recovery yet uh, and because there were these earlier pressures that had already uh, pushed a lot down. So uh, if we see something like that coming out of, uh, out of the meeting, then I think uh, uh, that would be a very positive sign for a lot of people uh, who have been struggling um, for, for more than the last three years and uh, who are, are looking for ways to, to move forward. Does the Party Congress address, you know, kind of really specific issues like fiscal policy, taxation, monetary policy, uh, you know, that will then get translated into an annual budget, or is it strictly big picture direction? I think it's primarily big picture uh, direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the, you know, one of the things that we, we sometimes see during the Congress, because, you know, we have the Congress, uh, the Party Congress now, and then um, sometime in, in the um, in, in March or, or sometimes late February or, or mid March, we have the National People's Congress, where um, you know the, the various policies that are um, that are proposed during the, the, the current Party Congress are then uh, enshrined into law. So um, sometimes what we see is that things will be discussed in kind of um, not vague ways, but but general ways, and then the party will watch to see how the markets move on that information. They'll watch to see how public opinion responds. They'll watch to see how uh, a broader opinion in the party responds to these proposals. And then um, at the same time, at the state level, they'll be studying, uh, okay, how do, would we actually implement those? And so then there's this complex process where they're looking at opinion, they're looking at capacity, they're looking at needs, they're looking at how the markets are, 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 are responding to these policies, uh, and then uh, and then putting in place the, the, the rules and regulations in a, in a, in a um, finer-tuned way in the, in the NPC. And then, of course, subsequently that, to that, we'll see um, uh, further fine-tuning 
uh, as they move forward. All right. And, and Mark, I just want to um, ask, how likely is Hong Kong uh, to come up at all during the week-long Congress? Well, um, in the document that was released on Wednesday, there was a statement about Hong Kong, which was that Hong Kong was in chaos. The central government took decisive action and the situation now is stabilized. The one country, two systems is, is reaffirmed and patriots uh, running Hong Kong. So that issue is more or less settled. So there are so many other issues to be dealt with in the work report. Um, you know, the Hong Kong issue is settled. Uh, you know, the, the central government has made its decision. It's put its system in place here. So um, I don't expect Hong Kong will merit more than a couple of paragraphs. So is, it, is that a good thing? Is it better, better if we're just kind of like left to our own devices and not really on the radar? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, Taiwan, for example, there will be several paragraphs about Taiwan. So <laughs> if I was sitting in Taiwan, I, I would be quite nervous about that. So, yes, yeah, better to be discreet and off the radar, I think. And uh, so far, we've been uh, talking about what uh, we may see from the Congress. Uh, but looking back, um, what were the most uh, significant achievements of the party in the far, uh, past five years under President Xi's leadership? This is to me? Yes, yes, Mark. Um, well, you know, he's, he's a very decisive leader. You know, he's taken action in many, in many spheres. So, um, you know, if we look at his foreign policy, he's changed. You know, uh, China's stance toward the United States, uh, toward the Western world, is, has changed. The, the Chinese diplomats cha- uh, behave in a different way than they did before, and this is a, a mark of his of his policy. Um, within China, I think uh, President Xi is, is a very committed Marxist. He believes that the party is essential to control in all aspects of Chinese life, including private sector companies. So um, he's extended the rule of the party to all sectors of China, whereas in the Dungist era, the party, of course, was very important and was the the leader, but it kept out of many sectors of of, uh, policy because uh, Deng believed that was the best way to develop the economy. So uh, Mr. C has gone in the other direction. So uh, I think he would regard this as one of his most important policy achievements over the last 10 years, that the party is more powerful and more present in the lives of Chinese people than it was during the Dungist era. All right, Dr. Mahoney, what do you think were the main, uh, the main achievements of the party in the past uh, five years? I think what the party itself would say would be uh, reaching the Shaokong uh, Society goal last year, uh, uh, establishing a moderately prosperous society and eliminating uh, extreme poverty. Um, I'm going to say something that's very unpopular, <laughs> which is uh, I think the, the historic goal has been uh, the, the incredible success associated with the zero COVID policy. I'm, I'm, I'm well aware that a lot of people are are, are fixated on, on some of the downsides of this policy, but uh, you know, conservative estimates indicate that uh, China uh, probably would have lost somewhere around 4 million people if they hadn't uh, um, uh, implemented the policy as successfully as they did. We know that when Omicron was, was breaking around the world, uh, uh, many experts, and, and I'm a former public health officer with CDC in Atlanta, many experts were saying that it was impossible to contain uh, uh, Omicron 
and uh, that this would be the, the the fail point of the policy, and it wasn't. And so, you know, really, um, you know, it's big, you know, the poli- China has become kind of a victim of its success. It's very hard now to dismount from this successful policy because we know that when we do, uh, we are going to see people dying from it, and and nobody uh, in in, uh, in in Beijing wants to see that happen. Uh, people talk about there being political consequences or political reasons for the policy. I think that the chief one is is they don't want to take uh, uh, political responsibility for for people dying mm. um, because you know, historically. Uh, deaths uh, attributed to public policy are some of the most sensitive and destabilizing events uh, for Chinese government. Um, so, yeah, I would say that, uh, that the zero COVID policy uh, indicates a type of uh, technological capacity that, uh, uh, on, in, a, in a large stake that we haven't seen anywhere else. Uh, and it, uh, it really uh, has uh, allowed, uh, I think, uh, China to preserve its health um, and, and again, not just that it would, it would have lost more than a million people, but you know we're seeing that, uh, that blood surveys are showing in the United States that somewhere between 70 to 80 percent of the Americans have been affected, and that 20 percent of those infected have some form of long COVID. And that this is, uh, you know, one of the that, that there's this high rate of disability now, and that, that it accounts for something like a third of the problem with uh, employment or uh, the lack of workers. So it's really difficult for us to imagine how big. Though, you know, and plus the information with the U.S. Uh, uh, life expectancy declined now lower than mainland China. So you know, if, if that had been allowed to run unchecked here, um, what sort of problems will we be encountering now? Um, it's really difficult and, and terrible to imagine. So uh, these, I think that's probably the biggest achievement of the last five years. Okay. I mean, pandemic management wasn't in the last party Congress because nobody really saw it coming. But, I mean, will it, will it be will, – will pandemic management be a big part of, uh, you know, Party Congress results and five-year plans going forward. I think it has to be. Uh, the extent to which they want to talk about it uh, remains unclear because uh, I think one of the things that that Beijing has 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 uh, not done a very good job um, uh, at is is explaining in in clear detail why the policy is is so compellingly um, necessary. And I suspect um, I suspect this is because. They want to maintain uh, some flexibility. In other words, if at some point they decide that no longer can they afford this policy, uh, they want to have the freedom to change it. Uh, they don't want to, you know, create this uh, overwhelmingly compelling narrative so that people become so invested in it that that, uh, that they're that they're willing to go down with the ship if necessary. So, um, so I, I but I so I, I think that they're. they're Definitely, they're going to talk about it, but the extent to which they'll talk about it and and really uh, explain it uh, better than they have is is something that remains to be seen. But you know, we've seen we've seen indications and in, in, with the People's Daily editorial recently, as well as you know, uh, uh, hiring announcements for 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 uh, Pudong uh, District here in Shanghai, uh, trying you know seeking uh, 500 workers in, in pandemic management for the next two years, so forth and so on, that indicate that in one form or another, that the, the policy is going to continue in some substantial way. Okay, so I guess Sunday they, they go into the black box. Uh, there's no white smoke, black smoke, but we will get results four days later. Thank you very much to Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst, and Dr. Mahoney from East China Normal University and Southeast University in Nanjing. He's a double professor. Thanks for joining us to talk about today's topic, the Party Congress. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 266 and have your say.
And back on Back Chat, we are now turning our uh, discussion to a new study that showed a threefold jump in the number of views and online posts about cannabis products in the past year. And uh, to talk about this and the broader issue, we have Cindy Ng, who is the Senior Program Manager with the Kelly Support Group. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning. Good morning. Cindy, why are people concerned about online posts, memes, uh, comments? Why is that Why is that an issue that somebody would want to go and study? You know, I think it's a really interesting trend. You know, nowadays, young people go on. So Kelly worked with a lot of young people, and we know that a lot of young people go on social media to look up information, you know, look up for exciting things. And, of course, about the cannabis part is that, you know, everyone is talking about CBD these days especially, you know, seeing CBD products around Hong Kong, um, like rising in the last couple of years, and also like the newly, you know, gonna enforce law is always mentioning about CBD. So that's why a lot of these information have been put online. And then it's not surprised that young people or even adults, you know, go online and search and be curious about, you know, what are these like cannabis or CBD related products. And that's why it's a concern because, um, you know, going on online to look up information can be really one way. And then we're not sure, you know, how people are going to take away these messages. Yeah. And that's why I think a research like this is quite important. Sure. So full, I, I have to get my uh, disclosures in at the beginning of this segment. So I, I invested in the first uh, company that brought CBD into Hong Kong uh, and uh, still, still have my investment in the company. So I have to put that out there. Um, uh, you know, if there's if they're including things like CBD and I guess they're talking about posts. A lot of that's come from the police and the government. I mean, how much of the rise in posts is coming from normal companies or the police and the government about it? I mean, imagine they must be a lot of that posting because they've talked about it a lot this past year. Exactly. I think, you know, it's not only about like people who are interested in the product to post it up or even might not be the young people themselves to, you know, to post up these like kind of information. But you're right. I think a lot of that is from the company or, you know, from the government who really want to raise awareness of what the product is. And it's not surprising, you know, people would actually go after the post and look up, you know, what this product actually is, it's especially, you know, the government is going to like post a law about it. So I think that is a lot of like, you know, um, interested in knowing what's going to happen next. Right. So, I mean, I mean, if people are thinking that there's a lot of, because there's a lot of posts online, maybe there's a lot more drug activity, but maybe it's just because the government's talking about it a lot and businesses are, are promoting their products? Yeah, I think in some way it might be as well. Yeah. Right. So, so you've seen more online posts about uh, uh, this issue, but is, what, what sort of form is it in? Uh, can you tell us a bit more about it? Is it in form of memes, hashtags, animation? What have you been seeing? You know, it's like, I think a lot of like these, like, you know, the, the research was saying that there is a lot of memes, hashtags about these. I think it's just a form of way to get people attention and interested on searching for in more information. And I think this is a way of like, you know, getting young people or those that who are interested to keep searching what it is. But I think it comes back to us, you know, for Kelly, we really think that, you know, young people can easily, you know, um, you know, go on a hashtag and then we'll be extensively, you know, be able to lend even more information. But then it's come back, come back to us as like thinking, you know, how do we actually um, going to deliver like the right messages for if young people are looking for information online. Right. So that's why we think that you know for social media it might be quite one way and not able to give them their 
you know, direct information. Right. And this study you're talking about is by the uh, Hong Kong Federation of Youth Groups. And uh, um, during the press conference yesterday, they said uh, um, they're worried that these uh, memes or hashtags will, will cause some users to underestimate the risk and severity of a drug abuse problem. Uh, do you, is, is that what you're also concerned about? Um, I think for us, we are also like concerning about you know activities online as well because it might be underestimate you know what is going on behind because when it goes to online it's quite difficult for us to you know or some organization to track what are the activities behind so that's why you know when it comes to when when we talk about you know drug issues we really want to open up conversation with these young people directly and if it's stay online, it's really hard for, you know, not even us, but other parties, like other social workers, really you know, work with these young people to understand why they have to, you know, stop looking for this information or even start using or experimenting, you know, these substances. And uh, you, you work with uh, young people quite often. Um, is there a general misconception among them about uh, drug use uh, believing? I mean, do they believe, for example, um, that they are able to fight off any drugs and they, they don't have any problems or addiction problems? Yeah, because I look on this survey and I think they quote that, you know, 20% of young people think that even if they use drugs, um, they would be able to manage it. I think it comes to that, you know, when it comes to talking about addiction, it can be quite complicated. It's not like a single solution to it. And even someone that is addicted, they might still think that they can manage it because they assume that they can. So that's why when we think about these, it's really you know, important for young people to understand, you know, even they don't see the immediate damage to the body or any impact, you know, what are the assumptions that, you know, they would be able to manage. So that's why, you know, in the in our work, when we come to prevention, we really want to work with young people in using substances is the only solution to some of their, you know, um, you know, daily issues or personal struggles. Mm. Uh, I'm curious, like, you know, these guys are focusing on cannabis, which I thought was never really that popular in Hong Kong uh, just because of the way it has to be consumed. Hong Kong's a dense place. You know, it. You know, if somebody lights up a joint in, a, in an apartment in Hong Kong, you're probably 50 other apartments are going to be able to smell it and rat you out. I mean, uh, why, you know, it, it seemed like in the past, like 10 years ago, it was all about ketamine and ecstasy and teenagers. Um, has that changed or is it still, <clears throat> or is cannabis really on the rise or is it just more people are talking about it? When we, when we do work with young people or even talking with um, other NGO uh, partners, we know that and really see that the trend of cannabis is rising. I think it's also because of, you know, cannabis, this is like heat topic, not only in Hong Kong, but all over the world on, you know, a lot of country is legalizing it. So that's also like a race of conversation, you know, even when we talk with the young people, you know, they would question, you know, what's happening, you know, in other other part of the world and, you know, Hong Kong is still illegal. And then also there is a lot of like trends or like, you know, on the media, actually talking about cannabis is not like really harmful. So that's why for young people to consider um, using drugs, they might think that, you know, cannabis is comparatively might be a safer substances than others. So that's why it can, you know, see why it becomes a bit more popular as well. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of that, there's a lot of that media in those countries like Canada and Australia, the, you know, the second or third biggest media is in Chinese language. Uh, and so highly accessible to people in Hong Kong. Does that, how does that make the conversation more complicated? I think when it comes to, you know, a lot of like information on cannabis, like, you know, throwing on the internet, I think it really, you know, makes young people have like a kind of, 
you know, a conflict conversation, isn't it? In Hong Kong, it keeps telling you it's illegal, you know, it's bad. But then a lot of other media is telling you that, you know, it's, it's not as bad as you think. So I think it comes to, like, really for young people, they are quite confused to messages sometimes and not really sure um, if they haven't experienced it or don't have people that who use it around them. They might really question, you know, what practice is real. So that's why when we, you know, talk with them, we really you know, thinking how to open up conversation to let them see, like, the whole picture, different views, and then be able to help them to make informed decisions. And do you find that they are able to have those complex conversations and make, make informed decisions, not just a good, bad, black and white type conversation? Yeah, when we when we do our education, we really, you know, don't like the, you know, one-way kind of like, you know, this is bad, you know, this is the harmful effects that you will get. But then we always go you know, under to really understand, you know, what makes them actually want to try it out. What is it because of peer pressure, curiosity, or, you know, a lot of young people also, we see that use drugs can be using it to, um, you know, deal with stress or other negative emotions. So that's why there is a lot of underlying meanings behind, you know, why they're using drugs. It might be, it's more important to look at the relationship of, you know, why they're using these to their, like, you know, personal, individual, like me. Okay. Well, a complex issue, and I know the uh, the people at Kelly Support Group, including Cindy Young, are, are uh, putting their heart and souls into helping people out. So that's great work. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today, Cindy. All right, and that is Back Chat on Friday. Thanks so much to you for listening, calling, and getting in touch with us uh, all throughout the week and during the show. Uh, thanks, of course, to my co- my host today, uh, Janice Wong. Uh, the show was produced today by Yuki Tsang and uh, making us all sound good in the booth was our man Ming. Make sure you tune in Monday. We're going to have more Back Chat with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse lighting up your airwaves. And the weather, before we go, fine and dry, max temperature of 31. Summer is holding on. Temperature is 26 degrees Celsius right now, 64% humidity. And for Friday, this has been Back Chat. Dump rubbish and leave old motorcycles in the alley. I clean it all up. You dump boxes, cigarette butts, takeaway meal containers, and drink cans at the street corner. I clean it up. People even dump construction debris and old furniture everywhere. She dumps rubbish. He dumps rubbish, too. We keep cleaning it up. That's a never-ending cycle. It's time to change. Stop dumping rubbish. Keep the environment clean for a better Hong Kong. The time is now 9.30 and the news with Barry O'Rourke. The government is to relax more social distancing measures from next Thursday and allow live performances and dancing at premises such as restaurants, bars and clubs. The Undersecretary for Health, Libby Lee, says the government is also considering raising the public gathering limit from 4 to 12.